netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our subject today focuses on the U2 UV Octoon Baby Live show at the Sphere in Las Vegas. Our guest is Peter Kirkup. He's the Solutions and Innovations Director at Disguise. Now, Disguise has been working with U2 for, for many years on their live performance graphics from both a creative and technical perspective. And the Sphere obviously provides incredible canvas to work with on so many levels. You know, one could think of it as having parallels to VR environment, but with the interaction of audience members next to you, or as Mike calls it during the podcast, the biggest LED volume for lighting. Um, I'm fighting the flu and losing my voice, so let's cut the intro short and get right into the discussion. Mike, over to you. So, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Much appreciated. I appreciate you having me. So, you guys have a long history with you two. Obviously, we're very keen to discuss what is one of the most complex or interesting uh, staging uh, of recent times. If of, but but you guys go way back, right? Yeah. So actually, the company was founded in about two thousand and three, and in two thousand and five, we did the U2 Vertigo tour. So way back, what's that, 18 years ago, we started working with the band, originally as a creative agency. And then the software that we'd written became useful to play out and pre-visualize the content that the creative agency was delivering. That became the touring media server, kind of almost before media servers were really a thing. And then since then, we've worked with U2 on every major kind of global tour and event so it's been a it's been a great heritage of growing up into the industry with our product becoming more mature and more more well known as well as of course you too also growing up and becoming you know a global phenomenon which has been great to great to be part of yeah i've seen many of those tours uh over the years and i've always been impressed by their use of visuals uh and in particular you know, thinking about it, impressed with the mapping of those visuals onto whatever, I was going to say screens, but that's doing it a bit of a disservice, right? At various times, those things have been very curved shapes, uh, things that are round, like quite complex um, uh, projection environments or Canvases display environments. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, um, we which, kind of describe them as display canvases because, right. LED, as you say, LED screens doesn't really cut it sort of evokes you know a stadium 16 by 9 in the corner or something this is this is very different the visual storytelling that the bands do is a very integral part of their tours right it's, it's sort of what they've become known for yeah absolutely and on some of those previous tours those were very much spherical uh canvases but in the sense that we the audience were surrounding the band and hence the yeah. visuals were being displayed you know, sort of in 360 kind of, uh, or could be appreciated from 360 degrees. And of course, the sphere that they've just done at the uh, installation in Las Vegas is the kind of flip side of that, because now instead of us being around the band looking in at a circular sort of display, it's encasing the audience. Yeah, and, you know, that that presents its own challenges, but also opportunities, you know. I. I feel like with the, the the traditional sort of concert format, 
where people are standing either 270 degrees or 360 degrees around the band. You know, you get a certain level of engagement, but there's always a level of looking at something that's fairly far away from you, especially, you know, if you don't make it to the first few rows in that rush of the general admission. Um, whereas with Sphere, there really is no bad seat in the house because the screen is encompassing everyone and it's completely, you know, filling the space. So from the visuals, you really can feel that level of emotion right up to the back of the, the, the space. But also down on the general admission area where you're standing close to the band, you've still got that proximity to the content and the and what's happening. And by using the visuals cleverly, you're able to to bring the band close to the people elsewhere in the sphere as well, using um, what would traditionally be iMag feeds, kind of camera feeds from live cameras in the in the area of play being fed up onto screens that you would see on a traditional concert tour. In Sphere, we're able to play with that canvas a lot more. So one example, one song, we put the iMag feeds into bubbles and the bubbles float around the screen. So you have a bubble of Bono appear near you up on the screen. Right. So that sort of proximity to the content and the relationship to what's happening on stage feels a lot more natural than when you've got that sort of physical distance that you often encounter in stadiums and arenas. So before we get into the technical stuff, which I'm very keen to dive into, just set us up for the parameter. So clearly the sphere isn't U2s, they're the the um the act that's uh sort of opened it. Um, does the U2 creative stuff and hence the stuff that you've been involved with only affect what was displayed inside for the concert, or was there also any consideration or creative input to what's outside the sphere that the rest of Vegas sees? So our involvement as Disguise was purely inside the sphere for okay. YouTube. Um, but there was some content delivered by the creative teams to match on the exterior, particularly at the exit point. So continuing the show beyond the exit of the venue. So when the audience turned around and looked back on the sphere, the, the sphere was actually mirroring the last scene that they saw from the inside. So there was right. kind of a continuum of storytelling and before there was uh, there was some, some branded content and some kind of YouTube specific content as well but that's handled by a separate layout system our responsibility was to show the production elements I guess inside the, the and the because this wasn't U2's thing like it wasn't a thing that they built uh clearly it was mapped and worked out for doing visuals by the company that built the sphere right so was this a little different in that you were kind of interfacing or did you rather than sort of pick up on what they were already doing for other non-U2 uh, properties, were you just mapping it and doing yourselves? Like how did that work between you and the the fixed installation, as it were? So there's a there's a defined LED pixel map, which is basically the, the allocation of this pixel is in this physical place in the space. Um, and that is kind of the, the handover point, if you like, that those files define the images we need to send to the LED processors in order to get the correct pixels in the correct space. And we load those into our software and then we're free to use our workflow to, to map the content however appropriately within our own software. So as an example, we fairly often are using spherically projected content using a kind of lat long technique. 
but then there are other moments where we use a perspective projection or we do um, we do other kind of creative mappings into the space as well to to enable the content team to be very flexible and that's one of the beauties of the disguise workflow is that kind of separation of the content and the mapping so that the content can be mapped appropriately to whatever the, the physical pixel delivery is. If you actually look at the rasters that are going out to the LED processors, they're kind of bonkers because they're they're optimized for pixel space. <laughs> they, they're all about you know, how how much can we fit into each of the 702110 streams. So of course your software is sort of upstream of all of this as well, in the sense that you're there for conceptual design development, right? That's right. Yeah, the software, as well as being this powerful playout tool for playing out and mapping content inside the space, is also a pre-visualization suite. So it allows a 3D render of the, the, the sphere. You get a representation of what the content's going to look like on the sphere's surfaces. And you can even put VR goggles on and look at that in a visualizer kind of at proper scale as well. So before the content team arrive in the space, they can actually have built a large amount of the show and seen a large amount of the show in context on the curved screen and so on. Because, you know, looking at a curved screen does have a, a certain amount of unusual aesthetic to it when you start doing perspective projections and things. So starting to understand that early, I think, was really important for treatment who were the content team who delivered this. So I imagine that sort of content creative validation stage that you mentioned with like vr and stuff is particularly the case because you want to see well okay it's all very well from this idealized position in front of the band kind of on the other side looking up but what if i'm over at the side right you don't want their views to be distorted in a way that makes their experience anything less than uh than uh you know a great a great night definitely and i think you know that's sometimes a, a choice that you have to make around almost kind of allocation of the show, duration of the show, because some rendering techniques will have a hero eye point, you know, just through the way that the content's being authored and created. So it's about making sure that there's enough elements that feel totally made for the entire space. So you can also do denial of perspective tricks and things like that when you want to, which will have a more refined eye point. The sphere, though, is pretty pretty generous because it is some... Um, curved all the way around but also the audience curves all the way around you the the hero eye point is fairly wide you don't find that you lose too much perspective in the audience area and um, because you're not uh, the audience is actually only consuming sort of 90 degrees of the 360 issue so let's dive into some of the technical stuff for a second now so from sure. the from what i understand it um Obviously, you pre-visualized it, but it, you know you have to then produce it, and of course, that's where your show sequencing, the servers and stuff come in. So, what is the sort of if there was a single resolution that you could articulate? What is the resolution of the sphere? So, the native pixel resolution is a sixteen k by sixteen k canvas. Okay, um, but it's separated up into the individual LED processors that we're feeding. So we utilize 25 4K streams to, to populate that screen because there's a cutout where the audience is within that 16K. 25 4K screen. Okay, that's quite a lot. <laughs> yes. 
it's quite a lot to to get to output and also to be in sync you know there's a whole this doesn't just play out it absolutely has to be in sync because it's an incredibly unforgiving surface because it's yeah. one homogeneous screen so is there a sort of a size of the screen like if you were to sort of talk about it in terms of square meters like how big is it that you're sort of covering um, we have that i don't have that number to hand but it's uh i think i read somewhere it was like fifteen thousand square meters does that sound about right it might be fifteen thousand square feet i can't recall okay. exactly the numbers there but um but yeah Peter, i'm just going to put a, an edit in here because i have the number yeah. and it's fifteen thousand square meters i lost you one second so i'm saying i'm going to put an edit in here can you hear me sorry Mike. I fixing my audio at my end. Oh, I don't know what's happened. One second. I don't know where my audio has gone. Okay, can you hear me? It's coming out from my computer now. Hopefully it's not giving you any echo. No, it's fine. So I was just saying that it is actually, according to your own press release, 15,000 square meters, right? You want me to we're going to so, say yeah, so I just give you the question again. I was just trying to let you off the hook by uh pretending like sure. I didn't know. Okay. No so worries. we'll give you the question again. So if you were to kind of I guess work out how big the screen is effectively inside the sphere, what's the sort of size of the actual dome's interior? Yeah, so it's about fifteen thousand square feet. Um it's a Sorry, pretty Peter, giant your press release says sixteen thousand square meters. Okay. I, I presume that that's correct. Should we go again? Let's do that again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we'll get it right. Okay, so here we go. So, Peter, if you were sort of thinking about it just in, well, I guess, in terms of size, just in terms of the interior of the dome, like how big is that sort of canvas? Uh, it's 15,000 square meters. So it's it's a really huge surface when you're actually seeing it and it's hard to describe just how immersive that is. You know, it really does fill your entire periphery as an audience member. And I've I've used the analogy of when you when you place a VR headset on for the first time and you get immersed in that content, there's a level of immersion that happens because your entire periphery is taken up by the headset. But actually you're sort of cancelling out from the fact that the screen is this kind of small rectangle in front of your eyes. With the sphere, there's no cancelling out. It fills all of the rods and cones in your eye. So every single part of your biology is being fed by this, this pixels. So you can really get absorbed. And, and there are moments in the show where I felt a physical reaction to the content because the content is just so so immersive and, and taking over every single part of you. But the difference with VR is with VR, it's isolated, right? You're on your own doing that. Yeah. With the sphere, you turn and you've got an audience member next to you having the same experience. So you get that shared collective emotion going on as well. Yeah. So we've got we've got this huge 15,000 square meters. You've got 16K. So if my maths is serving me correctly, that's like 256 million pixels yeah that's right how fast is the refresh rate on this sucker uh it's running at 59.94 so it's pretty much 60 frames a second as well and it's all ip streams so it's all 70 2110 
Right. So that's uh, that's a lot of data. Um, And and how much kind of storage do you need to pull that off? Because, I mean, that, you know, that's a lot of footage. And how long is the concert as well? Like how how long does it it go for? It's just over two hours, the show. Um, So, you know, there's there's tons and tons of content. We're using a high-resolution, high-fidelity playback codec called Not Chelsea for the rendered content as well, although there are real elements to the show. Each of the servers, we've got 23 servers in the system to drive that, and each of those servers has a 30 terabyte drive. The the show didn't quite fill those 30 terabytes, but with various different content versions going on during creative iteration as well, we were certainly glad we'd upgraded them. We were getting to to some fairly full drives, particularly on the the redundancy machines. In that, I was about to ask you about that. What the redundancy was and did that, has that come into play at all, or has it been? Um, we've been fortunate enough not to need the redundancy, um, but we have eight redundant machines in that system. So of the 23 machines, eight of them are, are sitting there waiting to go, and the rest of them are active during the show. So, I mean, this is obviously a massive undertaking and requires something we're not even going to get into, which is, you know, the creative development of the conceptual stuff, which in itself I think is brilliant. The whole idea of the uh, the flag from the early days of U2's concerts um, yeah. now uh, as a as an art piece in the new concerts. Because, I mean, literally I'm old enough that I saw U2 when they really didn't have much but a sort of a square screen behind them in the very, very early days of the band. Uh, I'm that old uh, here in Sydney. So I remember those days uh, from, uh, you know, the New Year's Day type uh, original uh, U2 concerts. So I love that creative arc. But just leaving that aside for a second, like how long did you guys take to kind of, or how early did you have to get involved with the project for this to sort of come to fruition? So we were were starting conversations probably nine months, early days, before the show and six months before we really started the kind of engineering and making sure that the system design was getting locked down. Um, and then the the team moved into Sphere, I think, nine or ten weeks before the first show because this was the first ever show in Sphere. That's what I was about so to say. It's the first ever show, right? So. They, not only were they designing a U2 show, which itself has you know creative uh, time needed to finesse the show, but they were also moving into what was a construction site that was finishing up construction. And they were sharing the production time with the postcards from Earth show, which was also launching in Sphere. And they launched within a week of each other. So everyone wanted screen time. Everyone wanted more time. You know, the, the golden thing was how much time can we get on the screen today? Because the postcard show needs time as well. And there was always a bit of trade-off. I, I mean, I, look, I don't know, but like if you had a glitch on the scale of those screens, you could make a lot of people kind of seasick. I mean, quite literally, if that screen flipped, you would cause people to like lose their balance, right? Like it's a, it's it's more than just a sort of creative thing, right? Like with that much peripheral vision, people are will fall over if it's spinning, for example, right? Like he's, you know, it's almost impossible to stand yeah. up and keep your eyes open. And there is a certain, you know, responsibility with the creative for that to actually kind of think about how are people going to respond to that. There's one moment quite early in the show where they they turn the sphere into a cuboid form and they they put content onto the sides of the cube and then they bring the roof of the cube down 
And you see the people, particularly in the general admission, standing at the bottom of the sphere, ducking, like <laughs> physically ducking to, to avoid this, this moment coming at you. So you can use it as a creative tool like that to create moments and to create interaction. But yeah, there's a there's a safety thing here as well. You know, the system is the primary lighting source for the space as well. You know, the when uh when they do when the streets have no name, the the whole track is lit basically with the daylight that's being rendered by the screens you know there's a there's a a a kind of day to night transition that happens throughout the duration of the song and you can look around and everyone looks like they're in the middle of daylight and it's a beautiful moment because it's it's a nice track to sort of share that experience with everyone around you but the responsibility of the video system goes beyond being a video system at that point into lighting the venue and creating, you know, moments for people in a way that, you know, that traditionally would be handed off to the lighting team. But well, I mean, there is the a, two- there's a point in the show, isn't there, where it looks like it's the dome isn't there, right? Like it's a view, as it were, of Vegas. Yeah, and that that was an incredible piece. ILM made that piece of content, so Industrial Light and Magic, and... It's a CG render of the view of Vegas if you were to remove the sphere. So you see us driving along and a rubbish truck coming along to pick up the rubbish and everything. But then it goes into an animated sequence of uh, the buildings being reverse constructed, which ends up with the desert. And it's a beautiful moment because it it is a, a cinematic quality where you can almost suspend belief and go i i know this screen is not disappearing but actually that does look like las vegas yeah yeah but of course if we think about it from another point of view you're talking about like i mean i know there are some actual lights in the room still but nevertheless it's basically like the world's biggest led volume for lighting right um and uh that would give you the natural lighting on everyone in the room as if they were kind of there notwithstanding the artistic intent of the uh the piece yeah and you know i think a lot of the the learnings that we and the industry has had from the explosion of virtual production has kind of fed into the appetite as to how to use this as a light source and how to create kind of moments and and elements where you can utilize the screen as not just a pure visual display there's another track where they do a, a kind of um zoetrope type effect where they spin colors around the space and you spoke earlier about losing your balance that's a a great example where they're they're using that to to evoke that from the audience to actually create a bit of motion and and so on but actually the on effect of that is also that you get a moving light source moving around the space so the color on the performers changes and you know in virtual production for movie making we use the the light source from the volume to create naturalistic lighting a lot of the time here it's actually being used the opposite to create really really saturated hues and really really punchy colors hitting onto the band as well as hitting the audience so yeah Yeah, it's an incredible thing isn't it like you've got this i mean a lot of emphasis has been placed rightly on the sphere as being a concert venue designed for concerts from audio point of view right because of course it um provides uh audio in a different way than a stadium does but yeah in terms of lighting it's a an entirely different approach to be able to light the audience and the band in such an environmental way that's 
that notion of spherical or sorry, spatial um, lighting and spatial computing, you know, we tend to think of as being a Apple Vision Pro problem, and you've got it on a scale of uh, you know <laughs> uh, almost biblical proportions. Yeah, uh, I mean, we are we are using real time rendering in this space as well. So we're utilizing Notch, which runs on board on our GX3 servers. Um, and we do full resolution real time renders at sixty frames per second during the show. Is that because you're incorporating live footage from the band on the stage at that moment? Yes. So a great example of that is one of the tracks where they bring four uh, K camera streams in from the Venices, which are the the cameras of choice for the the space, and they they bring those in and then. Um, use those on massive billboards that are pasted into the LED screen as CG renders. And then underneath the billboards, there's a full ocean, which is rippling and reflecting the visuals back from the billboard. So we have a, you know, a real-time render so that the visuals are represented properly on the, the ocean. And then lightning starts to strike, and the lightning's all in time with the backline, with the, the PA system, with the, the band playing. So actually, the whole sphere at various points strobes and and flashes with lightning, and again, talk about unforgiving. That's all real time rendering. So every frame has to be absolutely in sync, or the whole thing just doesn't look right. If this was a stage show, um, then obviously it would, you know, everyone would hit their marks and hit their beats, and everything would be normal week in week out kind of thing. But um, the band has actually had guests in the sphere right like uh that have come so that means that every night isn't necessarily the same in the same way that a stage production is so so how does the system accommodate these sort of more spontaneous moments because they've invited i think um i think i'm right in saying lady gaga was invited up for example right yeah and so the the way the disguise system works is we can divide our timeline up into beats and bars and we can separate up sections. So you can have sections that loop, sections that play and hold on a frame, and, and you can construct your timeline in a way that means that you can compensate for these type of moments. Because even in theater, even in conferences, a lot of different environments that we handle, there is this spontaneity moment of you never quite know how things are gonna go, but music is absolutely like that. You know, that a, a band, Bono's, been like riffing other tunes at the end of all the different songs and adding in new new layers of production all the way through and that's that's beautiful from an audience's perspective because every performance is unique and you get a great experience but it does mean the content needs to be made sympathetic to that you can't just linearly render three and a half minutes and that's your track and away you go you know it has to be broken into the right appropriate chunks with some some loop points and some you know, endings of the track is separated as a separate file that we play out when the ending actually happens, not just when we've hit a certain time code marker, um, so that you can sort of hold before that. And because you don't it. want the visuals driving the band, you want the band driving the visuals. Absolutely, and obviously, you know, a system of the scale of Sphere, there's a render time, so they're not creating brand new content every night. There are some some looks that are deliberately flexible for for spontaneity and other songs that have to be played out as a set piece but they still have those 
those loop points and so on within them. It's a fairly so, fairly complex job even coming up yeah. with that list. Of, so Peter, sort of, talk to me to what is actually like like is it one? Is it a team? Like what is what is in the sphere or who is in the sphere that is driving that? Presumably they're right beside the mixer or or whatever. But like, is it one person that can control that on a laptop or what? What is the setup? Yeah, so um, so our designer software runs on the main servers that are, that are powering Sphere. Um, the operation station, there's there's uh, Matisse and Sean are the two operators who are there day to day, and they're basically there as A and B cover for each other, so that they've got coverage because it's a pretty large show. They want to make sure they've got they've oh, yeah. got cover. Um, and then there's a, a guy called Smasher de Schmidt uh, or Stefan de Schmidt who has been with touring with the band for about 30 years. He's a, he's a longtime friend of Disguise. He used to do all the visual operation himself. And Matisse is actually his son. So there's father and son combo. Smasher is cutting the cameras. So he's running the vision mixing side, which is you know deciding which camera feeds come into the Disguise system as well as are being archived. Um, later on um but then the um the operation is actually down to a single operator so the operator is there responding to the the performance there are some triggers from the band's backline as well so that we can be absolutely in sync with the start of the track for example but uh, largely it, it's free-flowing and the operator is just triggering cues with a, a keyboard and mouse when the appropriate moments happen Right, so it's it's really playing the visuals in the way that someone would be playing or driving a mixer for for the sound, and the way that uh, a director would be directing a stage show. It's quite a fluid yeah. exercise. Absolutely, and for the real time elements where we're using Notch, Notch allows you to take control of the render from parameters that you can manipulate live as well. So again, Smasher up at the vision mixing end has a slider bank that he can adjust the visuals. So when we're doing distortions on the images, for example, crescendos of the music, that's Smasher moving sliders up and, and riding the song, almost playing along as another musical instrument to the band, if you like. Did you have to develop anything new to accommodate this massive project, or was it simply a matter of just scaling the software appropriately? It was certainly a scaling thing. And um, we furthered some workflows that we'd already used a few times called single large canvas, which basically means that from a programming and sequencing perspective, the operator only has to have one layer in the timeline, even though they're dealing with 25 4K outputs and, and loads of segmented video files and so on. And under the hood, the software is handling which piece of video is going out of which server and, and how does that all get rooted and so on. And um, so that was a that was a workflow that we already had, but we were able to, um, through a very close relationship with the production team, further those workflows and basically just make sure that that delivered uh, the scale of Sphere. So knowing what you know now, if you had to go back a year before the project started, would you guys have done anything differently? Would you have told yourself any pearls of wisdom or advice? Like, was it uh, there any kind of big lessons that you know you would take forward? I think one great thing that's happened uh, as a result of this is is closer relationships with the, the content team. Um, so, Treatment Studio, who delivered all the content, 
are located actually physically very close to the disguise office in London. So we've uh, we've been able to spend more time with them yeah, as a result of this production and talk about, you know, how we can further their workflows and work more closely together. You know, the content delivery side of this is is a massive challenge, you know, creating renders at that sort of resolution and so on. And collaboration with manufacturers who are playing those pixels out, I think will lead to, you know, more refined workflows and, and quicker and better ways of delivering content at this scale. And and from a just a purely infrastructure point of view, like you've got what, like hundred gig networking and stuff around the place. Like is it is that infrastructure uh, like is, I guess, are there any aspects of this? Not that they're 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 not adequate now, but like, are there any aspects of things like networking or or uh, server capacity or anything like that that you would say we can't wait until we can upgrade that or can't wait until that can, or is it now fairly balanced uh, setup? I think it's it's relatively balanced. You know, we we provisioned when we launched the GX three, which was only launched earlier this year. Um, we deliberately provisioned it with a lot of future-looking technologies like 100 gigabit networking and the ability to fit in our IP VFC cards that can do SMT2110 outputs and so on, so that we could look to projects like this as a kind of platform for the future. Of course, you know, there'll always be new generations of GPUs, new, faster technology. You know, the, the tech sector is always going to be moving forwards like that. But actually, it was it was a pretty amazing feeling playing with real time rendering at that scale. You know, just being able to freely move the eye point in a render and have twenty five frames all update in sync and things manipulate was was pretty liberating. You know, I've dealt with large virtual production stages. I've dealt with you know location based experiences, projection mapped experiences, things like that. And this. I think because it's one homogenous screen, it has a very different feeling than the kind of wild walls and the, you know, the ceiling reflection panels that we're used to in virtual production. You know, you, you're still doing the same thing. You're rendering and you're projecting the content from a camera's perspective and so on. But because it's homogenous, there's something quite special about just manipulating stuff and it feels like it's it's all one. So Peter, just finishing up, at a personal note, when was the first time you got to actually see real content in the sphere? And maybe you could just tell us what that was like for you, just personally. Yeah, so I visited the sphere probably about six weeks before the first show. Um, so I was in there with some of the, the production team. Actually, the first day that they had the operation station out in front of house. So it was the first day the operators were standing inside the sphere and able to manipulate it. They did run test patterns and things up before then, but it was kind of the first big content day. And it was really surprising how evocative that canvas is as soon as you start putting visuals up onto it. You know, having test patterns up there and, and sort of looking at the the technical side, of course, has you know nerd factor. That was amazing, like seeing just all those pixels light up and, and play back in sync. But once you start putting creative content in there and you can start changing the shape of the venue or creating you know deliberate um, perspectives and things like that, that was 
that was really surprising for me, just how immersive and how how evocative the space became. Bono described it as a as a, the Elvis Cathedral of Las Vegas, and I think there's something quite interesting about that cathedral word. That you know, traditionally, of course, cathedrals are central religion, but actually, what it's about is it's about that shared experience and bringing everyone together into one space that has a tone and a feeling and a, a reason for existing. And Sphere is really unique because it's been created to support the technology. You know, the architecture is defined by what is possible with LED screens, what is possible with speaker systems, and how to create the best possible experience for an audience. And this is kind of a trend we've seen emerging over the last few years with location-based experiences for projection mapping, where buildings are being built with a projection room inside them that you can go in and experience it. And it's not about the technology fitting in and serving the space. It's the other way around. The space is constructed to make the best use of the technology. And that's really exciting as a, you know, a creative technologist to be able to go, well, now I've got this canvas of spaces that can have whatever storytelling placed within them, whatever creative brought out. And, you know, the tech is there to support that, right? Our job as a as a technology provider is almost to recede into the background and enable the creatives to go crazy with the technology and do amazing things. That being said, fess up, how many times have you seen the concert? Uh, five times with the band. <laughs> <laughs> there are people right now who just going to kill you out of envy. It is uh, it is definitely unique every single time. And, you know, the content speaks volumes. The content is amazing to watch on its own. But having that performance, having that live element to it is really what makes that unique and makes it, makes it feel really special. Yeah, well, there are very few destination concerts, uh, you know, on this scale ever. So, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm one of those people in the queue willing to take you out the back uh, be out of pure envy because, uh, yeah, I wish I had a, a chance to experience it. But, look, thanks so much for taking time, Peter, to uh, walk us through it. And uh, congratulations on what is a both technical and creative uh, massive achievement. No, I appreciate you spending the time. Yeah, very much enjoyed the chat. Thanks, mate. Well, thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Peter. I really appreciated hearing about the process. I've always a big fan of the Staging View 2 shows, like, like Mike said he is as well, and their embracing of the various display technologies to really tell stories during their shows, as well as creating like cool visual gags, like the, the cube that Peter talked about during the podcast. Well, that's it for this ep. For Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.